Our Bible reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 39. And I'm reading from the New International Version, NIV. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 39. I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When sorrows come, they come not single spies, but in battalions. That's Shakespeare's way of saying, it never rains, but it pours. And it certainly feels that way this year, doesn't it? I mean, we started the year with those horrendous bushfires, the loss of land and livestock and life. And no sooner were they over that we were hit with the coronavirus and all the terrible suffering that that has brought. Loss of life and, and illness. The damage to the economy, which is only just now beginning. 
and of course the suffering caused by social isolation. Social isolation that looks like it won't stop for some months to come. I mean, it's been such a start to the year, makes us dread what will happen next this year, doesn't it? Andrew Probin, an ABC journalist, remarked only a couple of weeks ago on the news that it seems like 2020 has been the year that God forgot. So the question I want us to ask now is, is this the year God forgot? Does God care about the suffering we're going through at the moment? Will he do anything about it? Is God even there? Does suffering mean he can't be there? What are we to think about God suffering and the coronavirus? Well, of course, even if the coronavirus had not come, we'd still have this question. Suffering's always been there. The coronavirus has just brought it into sharper relief, hasn't it? A family I know from Tasmania have just had the first anniversary of their six-year-old son's death from cancer. What are we to make of that? A wife comes home after 20 years of marriage and her husband tells her he's leaving her. What are we to make of that? The Holocaust kills six million Jews in the most horrible ways possible and many of the perpetrators get away scot-free. What are we to make of that? How can an all-good, all-powerful God still let suffering happen in this world? Now, that's a question that's plagued Christians and would-be Christians for centuries. That's the question we're going to look at today. We're not going to answer every aspect of that question. I mean, how could I? The Bible itself doesn't answer every part of that question or try to. But it does give us some answers and it does give us real hope. That's where God is in the suffering of this world. Where is God in all the suffering of this world? Both the current world of the coronavirus and the world generally? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at today. And as we're going to see, it all centres in the end around Jesus. So let's get into it. Could a powerful, loving God still let us suffer? Let's start by asking that classic question. Could an all-powerful, all-loving God still let us suffer? Now, that question is technically known as the problem of evil and suffering, and it's been around for centuries. Here's its standard expression. If God is all-powerful, he would be able to stop suffering. And if God is all-good, he would want to stop suffering. And yet suffering still exists. Therefore, God must either not be all-powerful or all-good or both. That is, it's an argument against the existence of God, or at least God as we normally think of him as both all-powerful and all-loving, on the basis of the existence of suffering. What does the Bible say about that? Well, the Bible does say that God is all-powerful. Psalm 135, verse 6, for example. The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. That is, God does whatever he wants. He is all-powerful. The Bible also says that God is all-good. The Bible actually say that God, says that God is love. 
1 John 4, verse 8, 1 John 4, verse 16, God is love. And it goes on to say that because God is love, he always acts lovingly. Psalm 106, verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. God is not only all powerful, the Bible says, he is also all loving. And yet thirdly, the Bible also admits that suffering still exists. I mean, of course, we don't actually need to quote the Bible to prove that, though, do we? I mean, we just need to open our door or turn on the TV. The 19th century uh, English novelist G.K. Chesterton uh, once had a man come up to him and claim that suffering didn't exist. And so to, rebut it, so to rebut this argument, Chesterton kicked him in the shin. It proved pretty quickly that suffering really did exist. So what's the answer then? The Bible admits that God is all-powerful and all-loving and that suffering exists. So what gives? Well, at this point, you may be an atheist watching who's thinking at the moment, well, to be honest, the best answer is just not to believe in God at all. I mean, that gets you out of the problem from the start. There's no God to reconcile the facts of the world with. It's much easier just to say that the world has pain and, well, that's it. That's certainly the approach that noted atheist Richard Dawkins has taken. Let me quote. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and we won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Now, that may feel brutal, but at least it's logical. And it does seem to avoid the problem that Christian believers have boxed themselves into by insisting that an all-powerful, all-loving God still exists, even in a world of suffering. But actually, it's not as simple as that. Not only is that view so brutal that no one, including Dawkins, can live like that, it also creates its own logical problems that are actually much worse than any problem a Christian faces in this area. Because you see, like all of us, the atheist still sees suffering as unjust, not just unpleasant. When they see a child die of cancer, or the Holocaust, we all intrinsically feel something is fundamentally wrong about that, not just painful. But where does that idea of wrong come from? C.S. Lewis, a former atheist, put it this way. My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how would I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. 
Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. So taking God out of the picture in a suffering world actually leaves us with a bigger problem than leaving him in. But that still leaves us with the question, how could an all-powerful, all-loving God let us suffer? Well, the answer is that it's actually not logically inconsistent. A fact that almost all philosophers, both theists and atheists, now admit. Just because we don't know what reasons an all-powerful, all-loving God may have for allowing suffering doesn't mean he couldn't have them. It just means our minds may not be able to grasp them. I mean, it's a bit like kids and their parents. Kids may not be able to see why their parents do what they do, but that doesn't mean their parents don't have good reasons for it. It just means their children are not yet old enough to grasp those reasons. And it's the same with us. In fact, God may have very good reasons for allowing suffering. We could frame the formula this way and it would make just as much sense, wouldn't it? God is all-powerful. God is all-loving. Suffering exists. Therefore, God must have some good reason, which he's able to achieve, to allow that suffering to exist. Now, none of that undermines the awfulness of suffering. It is still awful. All it does is admits that it's not impossible for God to still have a good reason to allow it. Now, what could that good reason be? We know that a powerful, loving God could still allow suffering, but why would he allow suffering? Well, philosophy can't tell us that. But the Bible can, and it does, at least partially. You see, why would an all-powerful, all-loving God let us suffer? Because as a race, we've sinned, and suffering is God's punishment for sin. You see, humans have sinned. Listen to the way God puts it in Romans 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of the glory of God. That is, we fail to live up to his standards. And I think we all know that that's true. None of us think we're perfect. And all of us can admit that if we had to face God, we'd have to admit to him that we've not lived exactly as he'd want us to. Now, of course, you may say to that, well, sure, but that's a pretty harsh standard. Pardon me. It's a very harsh standard. Well, it's certainly a strict standard, but it's not a harsh standard. I mean, after all, God is the sovereign ruler of the world. It's not unreasonable to expect that he would expect total obedience from his creatures, especially if he's made us able to obey him, which he did. The thing is, according to the Bible, we chose not to obey him. We fell. And so now we all do fall short of the glory of God. And that's our fault. And God's punishment for sin is sending suffering into the world. Listen to how he describes that in the opening chapters of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 17. To Adam, God said, 
Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. You see, God makes us suffer as a punishment for our sin. He makes life hard. He curses the ground. And he makes life short. We die. It's exactly the same thing as the Apostle Paul says in that reading we just had from the book of Romans. Look there at Romans 8 verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. You see, the creation has been subjected to frustration. Life is hard and we die, exactly what Genesis 3 said. In some ways, COVID-19 is an example of that frustration. But that frustration isn't just a natural process. No, that frustration is a result of the will of the one who subjected it, God. You see, why is there suffering in the world? Well, it's because we've sinned and God has brought suffering into the world to punish us for our sins. Now, at this point, I've got to add an extremely important caveat. Just because suffering is God's punishment on the world for sin doesn't mean that an individual's suffering is God's response to their individual sins. So, for example, Jesus' disciples hear about an atrocity that's happened recently. And because of that atrocity, they assume that its victims must have somehow sinned to deserve it. But Jesus straightens them out. Luke 13, starting at verse 1. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. That's the atrocity. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Jesus says we can't conclude from an individual's suffering that they've individually sinned. If someone is suffering terribly, they get sick from the coronavirus, or they lose their job, or they feel lonely in isolation, it's almost certainly nothing to do with their behaviour. It's much more likely they're just caught up in God's general judgement of a sinful world. And Jesus says we're not to assume otherwise. But what he does say we're to assume is that we're all under God's general judgment for sin and we need to repent. That's one of the functions of suffering in a fallen world. It's to alert us to our need as a world for forgiveness. 
C.S. Lewis again puts it this way. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Why does an all-powerful, all-loving God let us suffer? What's the good reason he has for letting it happen? Because we've sinned and suffering is God's just punishment for our sins as a world. But the Bible's got four really important buts that it wants to add to that rather stark conclusion. Here's the first but. Yes, suffering is ultimately God's judgment on on the world for its sin. But firstly, God laments that suffering. You see, just because God causes suffering doesn't mean he enjoys doing it. The Bible always says that God would much rather bless people than curse them. And that when he does punish them, though his justice demands that, he would still much rather that he didn't have to. So, for example, in one of the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel 33, verse 11, God says this, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. I mean, it's a bit like disciplining your kids in a way. I mean, on the one hand, you do it because you know it's wrong not to punish them when they do the wrong thing. And it'll be better for them in the long run if you do. But you still don't like doing it when you do it because you hate seeing those you love suffer. It's right, but you still lament it. And that's how God feels about suffering. And that's why our first response to suffering should always be to lament it and not try to rush in with answers. You see, when something bad happens, like COVID-19, I think our natural first reaction as Christians is to try and explain why it's happening and, and to look for all the good ways that God might be using this for good in the future. Now, that's a good thing to do in time. And of course, it's what we're trying to do today, explain how suffering fits into God's bigger picture of the world. But it's not the first thing we should do when we face suffering. When we're talking to someone who's lost their job due to this crisis. When we're talking to someone who's lost their son to cancer. The first thing we're to do is to lament that we live in a world that has suffering. We're to put our arm around that person and say, that sucks. And then say nothing more for a long, long time. Because that's how God feels about suffering. It sucks. And and he doesn't want to have to punish the world with it. And when you look in the Bible, at the Old Testament book of Psalms, and you find that they're full of lament. People crying out to God in a fallen world. And you can too. So many of us are so quick to try and find the upsides to this virus. Oh, think of all the new ways we'll learn to do things, all the new skills we'll learn, all the books we'll read, that we can skip over the very real suffering it's causing. And that's not helpful. Rather, what we should do 
is first of all, be ready to say with God, no, suffering sucks. And then be ready to say that to others and ourselves when we're suffering too. That's the first but God wants to give to why suffering happens in this world. Yes, God is responsible for it because of sin, but he laments suffering. But secondly, God knows how we feel when we suffer. You see, God hasn't just left us in our sin and its consequences suffering. He's actually done something about it. He sent his son Jesus to die for our sins on the cross and so to bring forgiveness. So listen again to those words from Romans chapter 3, verse 23, but with the bit that comes straight after them as well. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He says something really similar in Romans 8 verse 32 from that reading we had earlier. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. You see what he's done. God's given up his son. You see, God in Jesus stepped into the world he was punishing for sin and on the cross took that punishment himself so we could be forgiven. That's really the core of the Christian faith. And what that means is that God knows how we feel when we suffer. He's not aloof like Allah who can't suffer or like Buddha who says that suffering is just an illusion. But rather God knows what suffering feels like firsthand in Jesus. And that's a great comfort to us. Because when we're suffering, it's important, isn't it, to know that the person who's dishing out instructions in life knows what it's like to suffer too. Since this crisis, you might have noticed that lots of celebrities are posting videos encouraging us all to stay home and showing themselves staying home too so that we can see that they're doing their bit. Now, it's well-meaning, but there's been a real bit of backlash against that. Because, of course, for them to stay at home is much easier than it is for us. I mean, they're celebrities, they're millionaires. They've got nannies and cooks and huge houses. Who wouldn't want to be in social isolation there? So, despite their doubtless good intentions, when Madonna or David Beckham or Gal Gadot tell us earnestly from their mansions how vital it is that we all stay home... We find that pretty hard to take when our nannyless kids are hanging off us in our regular-sized homes with no one to cook the meals for us other than us. Is God like that too? Sitting up there in his heaven, looking down on us as we suffer, clueless? No. No, he's been through it. He's been through it all, even more than us. On the cross, God felt the complete suffering of pouring all of his wrath against our sin onto himself. Now, God, more than anyone, knows how we feel. Edward Shillitoe, 
a World War I veteran, sums this sense of how God empathises with us in our suffering really beautifully in his well-known poem, Jesus of the Scars. This is how the last stanza of that poem goes. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. That's good to know when you're suffering yourself. Yes, suffering is God's punishment on an evil world. But he laments that he has to bring it. He knows how it feels. And thirdly, he promises that he will one day bring that suffering to an end. You see, Jesus didn't just die so he could identify with our pain, know how we feel. He did it so he could do something pay for the actual cause of our suffering, sin. And because he's paid for it, if we put our trust in Jesus, we no longer have to suffer for our sins ourselves in eternity. We can have, as the Apostle Paul puts it, eternal glory. All that's to say, God will one day bring our suffering to an end. Listen to Romans 8, verse 19 to 21. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. You see, this creation, Paul says, is currently subjected to frustration. It's his way of saying that it suffers. But one day, he says, it will be freed from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that he will one day raise everyone who's put their faith in Jesus to life and that creation will follow suit. Look how he goes on to explain it in verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. You see, that's the hope of Christianity right there. It's not just a disembodied hope of going to heaven and our souls floating in clouds as we play harps for eternity. No, rather the Christian hope is a hope of physical suffering ending for us and for our world. And that God will end that suffering by remaking his world and start by remaking us. That's a wonderful hope. Now, what will that eternal glory look like? Well, of course, we don't know. But we know it will be wonderful. Let me quote to you just one last time from C.S. Lewis as he reflects on what it might be like. Then the new earth and sky, the same yet not the same as these, will rise in us as we have risen in Christ. And once again, after who knows what eons of the silence and the dark... The birds will sing out and the waters flow 
and lights and shadows move across the hills and the faces of our friends laugh upon us with amazed recognition. Guesses, of course, only guesses. If they are not true, something better will be. For we know that we shall be made like him, for we shall see him as he is. God will bring an end to suffering in the end. And fourthly, he helps put our suffering in perspective now. Listen to Romans 8 verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He's not saying that our suffering isn't bad now. He's saying that the new creation will be so good that even our sufferings, as bad as they are, won't be worth comparing with them. And that's amazing. That's a great way of helping us cope in the meantime while we wait for that new creation. He gives us more help too. Look at verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. You see, suffering is sometimes so bad, isn't it, that we don't even know what to pray, let alone do. But God gives us his Spirit who prays for us even when the words have dried up. And God knows exactly what he's saying and so how to answer because he knows the mind of the Spirit. Can an all-powerful, all-loving God still let us suffer? Yes, that's not inconsistent, as he may still have some good reason to do it. And what is that good reason? Well, it's justice. When humanity sins, God's goodness demands that he punish us, and suffering is that punishment. But he laments the fact that he has to do it. He knows what suffering feels like. He's done something about it by dying on the cross so he can one day end that suffering. And he helps us in the meantime as we wait. And yet there's still one more reason that God allows us to suffer. And it's more profound than all the others. Look at Romans 8 verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You see, it says there, doesn't it, that God works for the good of those who love him. He wants what's best for us. And he uses all things to achieve that good, including the things that hurt us, like suffering. But what is that good that God uses our suffering for? Well, he tells us in the next verse, in verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What's the good he uses our suffering for? It's to make us look more like Jesus. You see, that's God's ultimate goal, to make us look more like Christ. He wants a whole universe of people who look like his son, many brothers and sisters. 
And he uses suffering and the ways it makes us depend on him, trust him, cry out to him to do it. Why is there still suffering in a world where God is all-powerful and all-loving? There's got to be. God's justice demands it. But this side of the cross, suffering doesn't just have to be a knife. For all who trust in Jesus, it can also be a chisel. One that God makes, one that God uses to make us look more like the one will one day join in glory. And there's no more loving thing that God can do for us than that. I mean, the world is hard. Suffering is awful. But God still loves you. He must do. He wouldn't have suffered for our sins if he didn't. He wouldn't have promised us glory if he didn't. He wouldn't even now be using our suffering to make us more like his son, his son that he loves if he didn't. So when we think about all of that, who can separate us from a love like that? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the greatest hope God can hold, on, hold out to us and that we can hold on to in this time or in any other time. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we are weighed down with suffering in our world and we know that ultimately, as a race, that's our fault. We sinned and we turned away from you and your justice demands that we not be able to get away with that, but that you punish us and that suffering is that punishment. And yet, Father, we still know that you love us, that you don't want to have to punish us, that you lament that, that you know how we feel when we suffer, that you've done something about it on the cross and that that means that we can, if we put our trust in Jesus, live forever with you in glory away from all suffering again. We know that you help us in the meantime as we wait for that, but most encouragingly of all, we know that you can use even our sufferings to make us look more like your darling son, Jesus. Father, if you love us like that, even in our suffering, then no suffering can ever separate us from you. And Father, we pray that we might cling on to that in this and all other suffering times. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.